Hey, Miles, I've been wondering, what exactly is the deal with the Montesi formula? Gets rid of vampires. It's a Darkhold thing, I think. Wait, I thought you knew this. I mean, I know that in Earth 92131 it turns vampires human, but that's really all I got. Oh, yeah, well, in the main timeline, it just kills them and prevents the creation of new ones. Yeah, I hate to break this to you, buddy, but there are definitely vampires running around the 616 still. Oh, it's not permanent. Uh, The effect only lasts for the duration of the spell. Huh. It was a retcon. They realized- That vampires are awesome? Basically, yeah. Well, and wiping them out will, of course, earn you some powerful enemies. You mean like Kthan? (laughs) No, Kthan's old news. I'm talking about the only thing arguably more dangerous than Dracula. Jay, a lot of things are more- The Council of Cross-Time Draculas. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 153 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to a random collection of Excalibur stories. Yeah, and we're recording these out of order, so it feels like we're kind of coming from the future or possibly going back in time in order to record this since we just finished interviewing Cena Grace for 154. Right, time flows like a river and history repeats. I learned that from the intro movie to Secret of Mana. Wait, what's the Prince of Persia version then? Uh, Pretty similar. Prince of Persia is where I learned you can stab things with time. You totally can. The Sands of Time was a great game. Also, it uh, nicely messes with the typical trope of a female protagonist getting more naked over the course of a story by having our male protagonist get more naked over the course of the story. I think we've actually covered this before on the show. Like, that specifically. Okay, right. So Excalibur uh, is the point of why we are all here right now, today. Yeah, so today we're going to be looking at Excalibur number 28 through 31. This is a collection of one-shot fill-ins, and boy are they ever. It is really a mixed bag. I mean, so if you recall, the last Excalibur episode we did was one with me and Elizabeth Alley, where we similarly had a few fill-in issues, and it's just such a weird time to be reading Excalibur because the cross-time caper finishes, right? You know, this great big, like, 12-part story that lasts forever. And we're on the verge of jumping into Girls' School from Heck, one of the more baffling arcs of the series. It is, yeah, but in the meantime, we just have a bunch of fill-ins by all kinds of different writers and artists with all kinds of different premises. Like, the book doesn't seem to really know what it's doing at this point. That doesn't mean there aren't some good issues, because there are, but they're not exactly cohesive. We've got, I believe, the introduction of of someone who is going to become the ongoing writer on Excalibur and later X-Men, Scott Lobdell. And I want to say here that we are going to be talking about this at much, much more length when we start on his ongoing run. But I kind of feel like I don't want to talk about his work without the disclaimer that he is someone with a history of fairly serious sexual harassment and that at this point that is something that it's worth knowing and considering going into his books i find his writing pretty delightful make of that combination and those balance of things what you will i think that's kind of a personal call but i do think it's an important thing to mention when discussing him agreed and for our part we are going to be covering a great deal of his work because like you said jay he's pretty central to x-men in the upcoming era But, you know, so... uh, Well, but we're also going to be trying, again, once we get to the bulk of that run, to frame that in a larger discussion about sort of the ethical nuance of going into work by a creator you feel really uncomfortable supporting. Yeah. So on that note, let's talk about mermaids. Let's talk about mermaids indeed. So the first of our four fill-in issues is actually 
I like a few of these, but I think this is probably my absolute favorite. Largely, oh, really? More than the vampire one? Well, the thing is, this issue has art by Colleen Duran, who is so freaking wonderful and such a good match for Excalibur. It's written by Terry Austin, whose name you might recognize. He inked a bunch of the early Bronze Age X-Men. And he is a really, really fun writer. I especially like that he basically uses his footnotes to talk shit about Captain Britain. He totally does. Making fun of Captain Britain is one of the most important tasks that any Excalibur issue should have. Again, he understands that that is his central duty as Excalibur writer, to just put Captain Britain through as many indignities and pratfalls as possible. Well, actually, speaking of things to know about Excalibur before diving into this issue, I think it's probably time for a Previously on Excalibur. The cross-time caper is somehow still over. Excalibur is back on Earth-616's England living in their lighthouse, except for Shadowcat. She is on 616, but they don't know that, and she doesn't know that they're back. Because nobody believes in phones in the X-Men universe, as we learned for the entire era between the fall of the mutants and Inferno. Currently running around with Excalibur are Captain Britain, Megan, Nightcrawler, Alistair Stewart, Phoenix, Lockheed, Widget, and the big dragon who used to power the Nazi Excalibur's train. For more information on that, see, I don't know, an episode from a long time ago. But I think a lot of people forget that Excalibur had so many members of their supporting cast that were around, like, all the time. I mean, everybody remembers the core characters, Captain Britain, Megan, Nightcrawler, Phoenix, and usually Shadowcat. Well, those are just the starting core characters. We're going to get a very different core cast eventually. Eventually we will, yeah. But right now we have, for instance, Alistair Stewart the sciencey guy from the Weird Happenings organization. One he's of my, a delightful scamp. He is a delightful scamp, and he's also been hanging out with Excalibur for a really long time at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's officially one of the team, I think. Sort of, kind of. I assume he likes to think of himself as one of the team. I suspect so. They accidentally printed his business cards instead of liaison to Excalibur. They just said Excalibur. And he just got really happy, but also confused. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So, that's where we find ourselves right now. I mean, the status quo is basically, they're around, in England, doing stuff, without Kitty. Like, there's not a lot of continuity we really need to know about, so, I guess, all of that being said, let's go back into Excalibur, number 28, The Night They Tore Down the Gilded Lady. Now, we mentioned this is written by Terry Austin and penciled by Colleen Duran. What we did not mention is that it is inked by Brett Blevins, and Blevins and Duran in combination, I mean, you just get the most charming line art possible. It really is. Like, it takes certain things that were a little iffy in Excalibur before and just makes them all delightful. And actually, that's what we get in our very first scene, because Captain Britain and Megan, who have, of course, been romantically involved for quite a while and had a quite troubled relationship over much of the course of that, are flying out of the lighthouse for a night on the town. They manage to escape without being noticed by their friends, and they're actually going to get some time to themselves. And actually have a functional and fun relationship. They are flirting and teasing as they chase each other through the air and having a really good time. And interacting with a kind of rapport that we haven't really seen between them in a long time, if at all. So we've got Megan. Somebody pinch me. I must be dreaming. Glad to oblige, ma'am. Which of the extremities does Madame desire to have tweaked? Ha! Fat chance. You'll have to catch me first, slowpoke. And they fly off, duffel bag in hand, uh, until they get to the mainland, where they alight and uh, put on trench coats over their costumes because they are the worst at disguises. That is one of my favorite random superhero tropes, the idea that you're just always wearing your superhero costume, and the way to disguise yourself is not to, say, change out of it, but just to put a coat over the bright colors and spandex. Well, the thing is, you could put clothing on over a superhero costume. It would be a little bulky. It would be like long underwear. I mean, presumably you could. I'm pretty but, sure Spider-Man does all the time. But the coats don't really hide the costumes. They just look like people wearing coats over superhero costumes. That seems awkward. That sounds kind of like one of those weird dreams where you're dressed really inappropriately for a certain occasion and you keep hoping that nobody will notice. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> but where they are right now is, as the title referenced, a bar called The Gilded Lady, which has an RIP sign on its door. And it becomes pretty clear what's going on. This place, which is where Brian used to go all the time when he was a student, like it was his local pub, he was a regular here, is getting sold to a wealthy developer due to gentrification. This is the last night the Gilded Lady is going to be open. Captain Britain, ironically, as an upper-class young man who used to basically come here because it was a working-class dive when he was in college, is appalled by this. Man, I gotta say, there's something really sort of inherently hilarious but also nostalgic about this. I do feel like returning to a place that's been hugely formative to you and discovering that you were just a passing note in it is kind of the fundamental post-college experience. Agreed, yeah. But it is clear that for Brian himself, this place was important, especially in the context of the chaos of his life since. I don't have that many old friends left that I let one go unmourned. And so the barkeep comes up, who Brian, of course, recognizes, taking their orders, and Brian's telling Megan about, oh, hey, this guy's an old friend. We used to be super tight back in the day. It is very clear the bartender, Mr. O'Reilly, doesn't recognize Brian at all. Not only that, but he is appalled when Brian breaches bar etiquette by ordering lemonade because Brian, to his credit, has apparently stopped drinking. And I think this issue may be the first time we've had confirmation of that, but it's one of the many things in this issue, in addition to, you know, Brian and Megan's relationship seeming actually quite healthy and fun, that makes me like Captain Britain a lot more. I mean, he recognized that he had a problem with alcohol. That's been a consistent character trait for him for quite a while. And he's doing something about it. Like, good on you, Brian Braddock. Unfortunately for Brian, the rest of the patrons don't see it that way. In fact, they feel that it is damn insulting that he will not have a pint to toast to the end of the Gilded Lady. They bring him a ton of beer to properly toast the place and see it off. He refuses their hospitality, and a fight almost starts until Megan saves the day. She comes back from the bathroom with Brian's face and physique, apologizing for her quote-unquote brother's touchy stomach and saying that, you know, she'll drink in his place. And she's still in her costume. Yeah, she's wearing the costume under the trench coat still, so it just looks like a big burly blonde man in this kind of low-cut green... Super low-cut. Yeah, which, you know, I mean, it was 1990, it was a different time. Okay, so tangent, when we were driving here, we were listening to a, like, best of 1990 rock playlist on Apple Music to kind of get in the mood for covering this era. We really need to start doing that every time. I think we do. But there was some good shit then. I mean, uh, Epic by Faith No More came out. Like, Poison was still out there doing stuff. Heart was still doing stuff. I kind of forgot how much 1990 was still the 80s in so many ways. Oh, 1990 was unquestionably still the 80s. Look at the hair. Oh, oh, yes, I will. I will look at the hair. All right. So Megan, as Brian's brother, toasts the Gilded Lady, gets pretty tipsy. And the festivities are interrupted by a young woman in a leather jacket and miniskirt and her cousin, who is a fairly nondescript, roughly cubic thug, who walk into the place with a hell of a proposition and also some pretty impressive names. Okay, so the squarish thug is named Bash, which, all right, fine, that's, you it's know, descriptive. It's, it's a deed name. It is a deed name, yes. He earned that by, you know, Bashin. The woman's name is Cooter. All right, I'd like to point out that in large areas of the South, that word is still primarily used to refer to box turtles. What does this woman have to do with a box turtle? I mean, what does she have to do with anything, buddy? Okay, see, what Cooter makes me think of, aside from, you know, that is that it's, it's like a function that's really central in the programming language Lisp, which used to be used for artificial intelligence simulation. There's one called CDR, and you pronounce it Cooter. And if you're me, and you're like 15 going to a programming summer camp at Duke University, every time someone says that, the entire room giggles. Wait, do you think maybe that's her secret? Do you think she's an AI? 
Or maybe she's just a Lisp programmer. I mean, we don't really get into her hobbies beyond, you know, manipulating people as we'll soon see. So maybe she just really likes coding. She could also be a really big Dukes of Hazard fan. It is possible that I looked up the etymology of cooter as a slang term and range of possible meanings before this episode and went on a really long research tangent and it was fascinating and amazing. Listeners, this is what we do for you. We Google cooter and just see where it goes. No, 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 no. I very specifically Googled cooter etymology. If you just Google cooter, you actually just get a bunch of pictures of turtles, I suspect. Oh, I mean, I don't know. The thing is, like, that's not the most memorable meaning of the word, but it's still the primary use of the word. I'm just wondering, like, what does a box turtle have to do with someone's bits? I mean, I guess there's the box thing, but I have no idea. So what I suspect, and I don't know this for sure, I also suspect we've got at least one listener who knows their way around lexicography who can tell me whether this is correct. I suspect those are false cognates. Okay. You should I, explain for the listeners and maybe su- what that means. So, so a f- false cognates are words that sound the same or look the same, but mean different things and have different origins. So there's fairly sad etymology of cooter as slang for turtle or as meaning turtle. The first recorded use is early 19th century. The other meaning seems like it could really, really easily have been a modification or I realize perversion is an ironic word to use in this context, but of other earlier slang. Okay, I see where you're going with that. That could very well be. Right. So I'm thinking specifically of terms like cooch. Yeah, yeah. Which is also how you pronounce the name of the street spelled C-O-U-C-H in Portland, which is how you can tell Portlanders from tourists. But I digress. What I suspect is that, yeah, that they're false cognates. Again, I don't know this for sure, and I kind of want to write into a way with words now, which, shout out, is a terrific lexicography podcast. That you should all go listen to. It's really delightful. I would be very curious to learn more about this topic. Jane Miles explained the X-Men, where we go off about the etymology of cooter for longer than we do some X-Men topics. Well, the hypothetical etymology of the word cooter, Miles. You gotta, you know what, never mind. Anyway, a woman named Cooter walks into a bar with her cousin Bash. And it's not the start of a joke, it's the middle of an issue. So, the proposition (laughs) that Cooter and Bash have for all the patrons... Sorry, I'm stuck on it's not the start of a joke, it's the middle of an issue. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of sums X-Men up, doesn't it? Well, Excalibur specifically. Yes, good point. But anyway, the tale they tell is that they've just been gold prospecting in the North, and they struck it rich and would like to sell their gold off for cheap to all of the patrons that are gathered here at the Gilded Lady. Specifically to better distribute the wealth among, you know, multiple social classes and speed the economy, because... I like the fundamental principle behind this, but I would like it more if they weren't selling just like random street gravel that they were pretending was gold. Right, because as we find out from one dude who just sees rocks on the table, not gold, Cooter has the power, maybe it's a mutant power, maybe it's some kind of an other power, maybe she's a turtle, to- A robot turtle. A robot turtle, to amplify people's greed. She can make people see things that they would want for themselves for greedy reasons. Hence, when she says these rocks are gold, everybody sees that that's the case. And her power doesn't work on the exceptionally honest or the exceptionally unimaginative. So that's the big catch. And this population includes apparently Megan and Captain Britain. Um, and as Terry Austin explains their relative stances in two different captions, the first, Megan, we may assume, is honest. Terry. Brian, on the other hand, once went insane when confronted with the reality of the occult, i.e. little or no imagination. Terry. Burn. I really miss editorial, like, little references because they would sneak in so much snark back in the day. Ah, I know. Editorial footnotes are wonderful. I also really enjoyed when they described an issue as, like, the now classic issue number, now on sale. (laughs) Oh, Marvel. Oh, Marvel. So as Bash is bashing and Cooter is, well, I was going to say Cootering, but maybe I shouldn't, using her powers, 
the place is getting kind of smashed up, like a big fight is starting between our heroes and these manipulative villains, at the same time that Mr. O'Reilly, the owner of the place, is signing over the deed to the suited wealthy developer. Yes, who I believe remains nameless, and this fellow is getting increasingly skeptical about his investment, although the implication is that he was planning to tear the place down anyway, so I don't really see what the big deal is with it getting a little bit smashed up. I mean, maybe he was going to smash it up in a particular efficient way. Maybe he was looking forward to smashing it up himself. That could be... Cooter and Bash are losing. They are no match for Megan and Captain Britain. So Cooter thinks fast and goes with the first idea that comes into her head, which is to convince the other patrons of the bar that Megan is a mermaid. Because that is definitely exactly what you would think to do as a distraction in a fight at every... What the fuck even? Well, you know, she tells them why this matters, because this mermaid is, and I quote, easily worth a fortune at any zoo. And Megan, once everyone starts seeing her as a mermaid, We know how her powers work. I mean, she's a metamorph, but she's like an emotional metamorph. She feeds off the emotions of the people around her. And their expectations and wants. So they see her as a mermaid, and suddenly a big mermaid tail bursts out of the lower half of her costume. Okay. And it's kind of hilarious, and Colleen Doran just sells the hell out of the humor of this. I feel like some people had some really uncomfortable, but like, validating moments of self-knowledge in context of this issue. I suspect that's probably true. And... Megan eventually is able to shake off the suggestion. She turns into a werewolf and effectively scares the patrons off, sending them scattering out the exit as Captain Britain tries to get back in. There's this great panel of Captain Britain fighting his way through the escaping crowd, and the crowd's clearly panicked, but they're also very polite, so they're saying things like, Pardon me? Excuse, please? It's good physical comedy. Captain Britain finally finds himself face-to-face with the aggressively werewolfed Megan, and just then, Cooter hits Megan full force with her powers. Megan sees Cooter turn into first Brian in a robe with flowers and wine, and then that Brian morphs into Kurt in the same getup. And this is a nice little uh, character bit here, because as we know, Megan's been with Brian for a long time, but Nightcrawler has been interested in her, and she's been interested in Nightcrawler almost from the start of the formation of Excalibur. What I'm getting out of this is that what Megan actually wants is a threesome. I mean, I feel like that could actually work out really well. Okay, so I'm polyamorous, so I'm sure I'm biased, but there are so many, like, romantic problems in fiction in general, not just comics, that could just be solved by everybody communicating, and possibly also fucking. I super don't see that working with Captain Britain in the mix. Yeah, he'd probably be really jealous. That's I feel like point. Nightcrawler would probably be entirely down for that. He's chill. But... Yeah, that does not strike me as the direction Captain Britain is wired. Open your mind, Captain Britain. Dude, dude, not everyone has to like or want the same thing. I thought the whole point was that you don't tailor the structure of your relationships to other people's expectations or prescriptive models. That's a good point. So that's got to go both ways. Okay, Captain Britain, I respect the nature of your relationship, but I still think you should talk to Megan about her needs more and maybe you could work something out that would work out better for everybody. Oh yeah, I mean, he's a terrible boyfriend, but that has nothing to do with monogamy. He's just a terrible boyfriend. Well... Anyway, Brian does manage to overpower Bash eventually, but he inadvertently knocks Bash into Cooter, knocking Cooter out, and freaking Bash out, who then knocks Brian out. Because, again, Pratt falls! Megan, at that point, just uh, having regained her senses, turns into a super muscly version of herself, knocks Bash out just in time for Captain Britain to wake up and think that he was the one that did it. Which Megan lets him believe, which she totally shouldn't, because, come on. I mean, she's very considerate of Captain Britain's insecurities, but I think maybe, like, too considerate. Well, she's also distracted by trying to uh, 
pull down the remains of her costume to cover her uh, less socially acceptable bits. That actually is really well sold by Colleen Duran's art. Like, this could be a super, like, titillating look how vulnerable she is moment, but instead it's just hilarious. She just looks so, like, embarrassed and, you know, looking around to see if anybody else is noticing, which most people don't seem to be. Yeah, no, it's the farcical, honestly, very, very Alan Davis feel. We talked about sort of Excalibur as a proto-sex farce when we were talking about the Davis run, and Duran's got that sort of wink and nudge playfulness. And the thing with this is, though, the reason that it bugs me has nothing to do with objectification and everything to do with Megan's powers and how they interact with her costume. Mm -hmm. Because we've seen her change shape and take her costume with her. We have, yeah. The only explanation I would have there is that because this was so unexpected and caused by a fully external force, or at least initiated by a fully external force. Wait, wait, Cooter's an external? Oh, that would change everything, wouldn't it? I mean, it is 1990. The externals are starting to show up. And it's never said that she's not an external. I mean, we don't know anything about Cooter. I don't think she ever shows up again. She does not. She is arrested, but quickly manages to trick her way out of the police car by convincing the surrounding crowd that the rubble remains of the bar are all bricks of solid gold and heads off presumably to con someone else out of something else. And so that's it. It's just a done-in-one issue with no real effect on continuity, but a really fun look at the dynamic between Megan and Captain Britain and just some really enjoyable art and enjoyable writing. You know what's not fun? Excalibur 29. Excalibur 29 is not fun at all. Ah, so we try to be as positive as possible on this show. No, no. Michael Higgins and Chris Wozniak should be ashamed of themselves. It's not a good issue. They should apologize. But what this issue does have is some very interesting context. So what we're going to see here is a sort of kind of crossover with Power Pack. Power Pack number 60 happens before Excalibur 29, although it accidentally came out a month after. Whoops. And that's where the story continues into. So if you're reading Power Pack, you would definitely want to read this Excalibur issue. However, this Excalibur issue is itself rooted very heavily in previous Power Pack continuities, specifically the part where Alex Power turned into a horse and Mrs. Power had a psychotic break of some sort as a result of finding out that her kids were superheroes. And basically, we try not to think about that run. So Michael Higgins, the guy that's writing this Excalibur issue, he was the ongoing writer of Power Pack at the time. He didn't write for very many issues, and in fact, the series was canceled after he wrote only a few. I guess fan reaction was not very positive. Understandably. Oh, my God. But what interests me is that Louise Simonson and June Brigman, you know, two of the OG Power Pack creators, came back and did a Power Pack holiday special after this that retconned literally Michael Higgins' entire run. It turned out that the parents who had gotten all messed up and Alex Power, who had turned into a Chimelian-human hybrid, were just, you know, fakes sent by a bad guy, and they didn't realize they were fakes. And during that special, they just melted, and it was kind of horrific, and then the rest of the characters were able to rescue the real ones. So Michael Higgins is also the gentleman who brought us the uh, mastermind pretending to be Franklin Richards story and the demon druid story, and I figured out how to deal with his Excalibur stories. Uh Uh-huh. I like to pretend that his Excalibur stories are Troy and Abed and Annie playing Excalibur in the Dreamatorium. Okay, so that's why things are a little more, like, declamatory and stuff. Yeah, they're just sort of off and a little bit baffling, and Annie's maybe not as familiar with the source material. Actually, no, I feel like Annie would be the one of them who really knows Excalibur. You know, I think you're actually totally right. I think Troy and Abed would be more, like, mainline X-Men kind of people. Well, and, and would attempt to bring in concepts from other books and other continuity. And anyway, this is not a good issue. So, that being said, we're going to talk about it anyway, because that's what we do. And then we'll move on to sunnier, more vampiric climbs. So, there is a spaceship above the lighthouse. Specifically, there is Friday, the Power Pack's sentient ship. You know, not ship from X-Factor, but the sentient ship from Power Pack. And aboard the spaceship is a young horse kid. 
And this is, like we were saying before, Alex Power. For various complicated reasons, even though he's not the real one, this one has turned into a Chimelian, a race of horse-like people that are pretty integral to the power pack concepts. You can tell that they're probably bad because they're horses. I mean, most of them are actually probably good in the story. Yeah, but they're probably worse than they could be. Oh, well, that's true. They would have been actual paragons if they'd been any other animal people. I should say, I think I forgot to mention this around when it came out, but I was a guest on an episode of Welcome to Storybrooke, which is a Once Upon a Time podcast. And it accidentally uh, turned out to be the episode where a unicorn gets its heart ripped out. Ah, And Tina and I went on a long digression about how they're slut-shaming murder horses. (laughs) It was good. I hope the episode ended up being titled Slut-Shaming Murder Horses. It wasn't, but that definitely was in the intro copy. Well, that's good, at least. So Alex Power tells Nightcrawler, who he met way back in early Power Pack, what's been going on, namely the whole thing where his mother was having a rough time after seeing the kids use their powers, he got turned into a weird horse dude, and so his family is now traveling around trying to find a fix, and they ended up at the Institute for Psychic Research, which I gotta say, you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel there, guys. Mental health care in the Marvel Universe is really bad. Yeah, I mean, I guess... To Mental be f- health care in superhero comics is really bad in general. I mean, Arkham Asylum? What the fuck? Oh, I'm just thinking of that time that Cable put Rain into a straitjacket and locked her in a small room when she was talking about being a queen. That wasn't actually mental health care. That was nominally to prevent her from injuring others with no actual eye to taking care of her. Oh, because it was a cybernetic eye. That's why. Because it's Cable. Eh? I eh? hope you're ashamed of yourself. I'm proud. I stand <laughs> Go by Go sit it in all. the shame corner with Wozniak and Higgins. <laughs> As it turned out, the Institute of Psychic Research was just about the same level of sketchy as most of the other mental health facilities in the Marvel Universe, and it turned out it was being run by villains, disguised as doctors who kidnapped all of the Powers family except for Alex. Alex was able to escape using his density powers. He's currently Mass Master. The Power Kids switch identities and powers periodically. He was able to get to Friday the ship and thought, well, who do I know in the UK? I know Nightcrawler, and went off to find Nightcrawler and get help. And Excalibur, being big damn heroes, decide, sure, we'll help this kid get his family back, even though he turned into a weird horse and horses are evil, according to Jay. And so they go to the Institute for Psychic Research, disguising themselves, or at least Captain Britain, Phoenix, and Megan, the human-looking ones, as doctors. But then they immediately get gassed unconscious. They do! Like, they have this infiltration plan, which immediately fails when- Because it's Excalibur. <laughs> they are the least stealthy superhero team of all the superhero teams. Maybe Next Wave is less stealthy, but I don't know. See, I just keep coming back to our old D&D party that had no rogues or roguelike characters, and so we just stumbled randomly into whatever encounters were ahead of us, and it seemed to mostly work out. We were terrible. I mean, Shanna's character died that one time, and then she eh, went she to got better. hell, and- It was it, good. It was complicated. It was a fun game. so yeah the next scenes are interesting i mean uh, mainly in terms of layout one thing i'll totally give wozniak is that the next pages are pretty cool they're each separated by like an ekg line between the top and bottom rows and by this ragged black shape that approaches in every two-page spread a little bit closer and turns out to be the dr strange villain nightmare oh god damn it and that's what we see here we see a bunch of nightmare situations from each of the four Excalibur members' perspectives. But they're all really dumb nightmare situations. They're the kind of nightmare that you have and you find really upsetting and then you wake up and you feel too silly about how upset you were by that nightmare to tell anyone about it because it was just like something really pointless and stupid. Other people do that, right? Like, I'm not the only person who has like after effects shame from how prosaic and like cliched my nightmares are. Other people totally do that, Jay. I do that too. Okay, good. I have yet to have a nightmare about... How prosaic my nightmares are, but I'm sure it's going to happen eventually. Oh, meta nightmare. My subconscious is a dick. Wait, a meta- really, really hackneyed dick. Wait, meta nightmare. Like meta knight from Kirby, but also a horse. 
horses are terrible. It all comes together. How deep does it go? Nightmare is not a horse. Nightmare is a dude with kind of shaggy hair who takes over people's minds and basically, I mean, he's basically despair, but with a focus on dreams. And he's much more powerful than despair is my understanding. Right. So first and foremost, he goes after Rachel because she's the most powerful member of the team. She assumes that she can stave him off, but he disagrees. He is able to take over her mind while she is distracted. Your will has been dispelled. Your mind no longer exists. This is basically what that Chris Angel guy does, right? Yeah, but I think he wears tighter pants. That's probably true. And so, yeah, then we see Nightmare send Rachel now that she's his own hound. Poor Rachel, she can't catch a break. After the other members of the team in their own nightmares. So, like, Captain Britain is bound and on trial in front of the Red Queen from the Crazy Gang, about to be executed for treason. Rachel grabs him after he's, you know, beheaded. It's okay. He's fine. Megan is on a date with Captain Britain, who talks about how ugly she is. She cries and runs out in the street and finds Nightcrawler, who talks about how ugly she is. Interestingly enough, this was her big insecurity in one of Michael Higgins' other issues. And I think that's one of my problems with the portrayal of her when he writes. It just makes her seem a lot shallower and a lot less intelligent. I mean, not that caring about your appearance is a bad thing. It's just that she seems to focus on that to the exclusion of everything else. Well, and it's brought up as her greatest fear and the central defining part of her personality. And it's not just Higgins who does it. This is something that he's pulling from other parts of the run. I will say to his credit that Kurt's nightmare scenario is exactly the same as Megan's. Being rejected. Yeah, it's, for... it's Megan basically telling him the same thing that Nightmare Kurt told her. That you're ugly, I could never date you. Oh, poor Nightcrawler. I mean, I would date Nightcrawler. Everyone would date Nightcrawler. That's the point. He's like the most dateable guy in the X-Universe. He totally is. It's, it's like David Bowie. I mean, orientation doesn't even matter at that point. Okay, I'm not going to say this meanwhile yet because I want everybody listening to this to guess. So we have an Excalibur issue. We have the uh, various characters engaging in their own various plots. And we're going to introduce an outside deus ex machina who has sort of something to do with the existing characters, but only sort of. You've well, seen a couple examples. more relevantly, has something to do with the power pack, because I assume that's what brings this character in. But just like in Days of Future Present, just like in that one other Michael Higgins issue... Oh, motherfucker, it's Franklin Richards, isn't it? It's Franklin Richards! But at least this time it's not a time-displaced one or an illusory one. It's actual Franklin Richards who is hanging out with the powers on well, their Well, it's track. his dream form anyway. Right, he gets pulled out of his body because apparently he's been captured as well and is able to disrupt Nightmare's weird gestalt monster form that he's been absorbing everybody into. There's a big cracoom and everyone wakes up and we next see Excalibur in the kitchen in the lighthouse wearing very sexy underwear and talking about their dreams. Okay, no, you can't just say very sexy underwear without elaborating because these outfits, if outfits they are, are fucking amazing. Well, Megan is dressed in the Jim Lee classic roughly cut-off camisole and panties set. And, you know, Megan, I would kind of buy her wearing that because, you know, she's ultra femme. Okay, that's fine. Rachel appears to sleep in a sports bra and a G-string. I think that's what it is, yeah. And, I, I mean, I don't really have uh, breasts myself, but my understanding is sleeping in a sports bra has got to be pretty uncomfortable, right? It really depends on the context and circumstances. But I want to talk about the dudes because, oh man, Captain Britain appears to be naked save for a towel draped over his lap. Not just that, he's sitting on a chair in the middle of an empty kitchen, naked save for a towel draped over his lap, with his legs spread wide, looking grumpy. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little off in the morning when I'm pouring my Fruit Loops or whatever, but this is, 
uh, you just you just cold angry naked court in the kitchen <laughs> that's right do you think he just sits there and glares and doesn't say anything for like the first 45 minutes of the day and they're all like couldn't you at least have like wrapped the towel around so it would have been under you on the chair too and he just glares he just glares and like maybe grunts <laughs> and Kurt is very clearly wearing nothing but a robe which is not tied which is just sort of draped closed uh, you know if you've got it flaunt it I guess so yeah, Excalibur has some sexy morning denouement in which they determine that they all had the same dream. Oh my gosh. And then we finally see the Power Family plus Franklin flying away. They don't believe Franklin about, you know, his portentous dream and insist that, well, you know, it's too bad that the Psychic Research Institute was a bust. Or in the words of Mr. Power, Nothing of any significance whatsoever occurred. So say we all. I mean, this issue, so it's not good, but it's just so batshit in so many ways and it's got that weird last page of Excalibur that I kind of have to love it a little. No, here's the thing. It's really fun to make fun of. It's not actually fun to read. That's true. So I guess our recommendation is just listen to this part of this episode and don't bother tracking down the issue. The next issue, however, is just a panoply of delights. It is peak Excalibur at its Excaliburious. There's no tech net, but otherwise I feel like it hits every note I want it to hit. Excalibur number 30. Twas a dark and stormy night. This issue is written by Dana Morrishead, who's mostly a colorist, but uh, will write at least one more Excalibur fill-in issue. And it's drawn by David Ross, who's best known for Avengers and who also drew the X-Factor chapter of Days of Future Present. I really like David Ross's art. And... Our point of view character is one of my favorite Excalibur bit players, someone who I love but who we rarely get to see much of, especially as a POV character, and that is the long-suffering Brigadier Alicent Stewart. The sister of Professor Alistair Stewart, who's been hanging out with the team, and in fact, that's what brings her out to Excalibur's lighthouse on this dark and stormy night. It's Alistair's birthday, and they're also throwing a party for Rachel because she's had a rough time, too. Wait, aren't Alistair and Alicent twins? I Oh, that would be her birthday, too? No, I... I don't think they're twins. Are they twins? They have similar names. Maybe they're on-again, off-again twins. I'm going to say on-again, off-again twins. What they are, of course, is Doctor Who references in terms of their names and positions, but, you know. And one of them is very, very grumpy. This is Brigadier Alicent Stewart. For the past week, the weather has echoed her mood. Tonight is no exception. The bad news for Alicent is that both are going to get worse before they get better. And any good Excalibur story should have that level of just, like, dripping melodrama in addition to the goofiness, and this one very much does. So she arrives at the lighthouse and is about to knock when suddenly Megan, in her old costume, looking like an old-school half-bat vampire, flies out bowling Alicent over. And Captain Britain chases after her, and Alistair opens the door, still in his party hat, Widget also has a party hat, and beckons Alicent inside. And this is a great way to open an Excalibur issue because... She has no idea what the hell is going on. Apparently, it's just been utter chaos, and now she's being welcomed into it, as are we, the readers. So here's what's going on. Rachel is on the couch, unconscious. She got hit upside the head. Nightcrawler is barricaded in the closet. Megan bit him, and Alistair is convinced that Nightcrawler was also turning into a vampire. And Alistair sort of thinks that he's got a handle on this, but very, very clearly does not. He doesn't even know basic first aid. Allison tells him, Alistair, neither of us is equipped in any way whatsoever to deal with a vampire, much less a mutant one. I don't know about that. I've been through a few sticky wickets in this team. Alternate dimensions, demon sorceresses. I've stared into the face of death. I've foiled the plans of cosmic giants. 
and sort of like an adult distracting a kid who could do more damage, she convinces him that, no, the thing to do now is to chill for a few minutes and open his birthday presents, which he does. Yeah, I guess Rachel got him this really rad soul sword shaped earring because as a reminder, although it never comes up, the soul sword is currently embedded in the ground outside Excalibur's lighthouse. One, does Alistair wear an earring? And two, is this a deliberate Satire 9 reference? Because it kind of seems like it. Yeah, because uh, Satire 9, or to pronounce it correctly, Saturn 9, gave Nigel Frobisher an earring with her logo. And now there's this- Her other... very sword-shaped logo. Right. So that's kind of weird and strange, and it's not followed up on. But I gotta say, if I wore an earring, which I keep intending to get around to getting an ear pierce, but I have been for 20 years, then I would wear that one. Alistair's next idea is to reach out to who? Who? Yeah, exactly. But he decides to eschew that particular plan in favor of giving Dr. Strange a call. Because Alistair is that guy who gets people's numbers and then calls them in the middle of the night with really fucking weird emergencies. And Wong, Dr. Strange's assistant, picks up the phone, leading to a slightly uncomfortable who's on first-esque conversation in which Alistair keeps hearing Wong as wrong. And that was probably funnier before people thought more about these things. So the message gets through, though, and Dr. Strange shows up along with his current apprentice. This is a furry green monster named Rintra. Rintra is awesome. I don't know anything about him, and I almost don't want to look it up to spoil the illusion, but he's like this giant green minotaur who's very polite, and he's also an apprentice to the Sorcerer Supreme, and I suspect there's a whole lot going on here. So Dr. Strange is able to clear up a number of things. Among other things, he's an actual doctor, so he's able to determine that Rachel is probably going to be okay and just has a mild concussion. And um, also that Kurt is probably not actually a vampire. Alistair just randomly panicked and locked him in the closet. Take it easy, Kurt. You're not a vampire, I take it? Nope. Never was. In fact, Alistair, as it turns out, has locked Kurt in the closet because he had forgotten that Kurt's teeth had, in fact, always been pointy. Kurt is not pleased. They've always been like this Alistair, I'd like to have a word with you later, in private. I kind of love how absent-minded Alistair Stewart is, because it's clear he was super concerned about Kurt. Like, you know, he didn't want him turning to dust at dawn or anything like that. He's just kind of a flake in some ways. Now, speaking of turning into dust at dawn, Strange is getting worried, because it is almost dawn, and if Megan is actually a vampire, she's going to be in trouble really soon. As you may recall, Captain Britain chased after Megan as soon as she burst out of the lighthouse, Widget and Lockheed also went with him, Widget still wearing his party hat, which is adorable in every single panel we see it in. They run into Inspector Di Thomas. This is the detective who really hates superheroes, but Captain Britain manages to get out of him that a woman has had a heart attack after being confronted by a seven-foot-tall bat creature, which then flew off toward Hyde Park. So Captain Britain goes to the park with his companions to wait for Megan, and then gets jumped, and there's grappling, and there's grappling, and there's violence, and there's violence. I can't communicate with her. She's too wiry to hold on to. I could. No, I can't. I love her. I can't hit her. She's a woman. I can't hit a woman. I can't. Then again. And he whacks her. And this is always so charming. Like, I mean, you know, I'm certainly in favor of not hitting women, of course. I'm in favor of not hitting anyone, but sometimes someone is a vampire and trying to bite you, and you gotta do what you gotta do. But I just love how Captain Britain is just so chivalrous, but, like, not for any reasons that are actually related to the situation. And how it bites him on the ass every time. Or, you know, whacks him on the head, as the case may be. So he goes after her and finds that she's in her human form again. She's transformed into what she normally looks like and has this malicious look in her eyes as she starts yelling rape. 
As it happens, there is a group of senior citizens that happens to be out walking in the park that night. They hear her cries and immediately dogpile Captain Britain. So false cries of rape, as we learned from Jenny Lewis's performance in the classic Nintendo movie The Wizard, I don't think you should do them at all. But I think the, it's also worth pointing out that they are far, far, far less common than said media would suggest. I would recommend that you'll look up the actual statistics around this stuff if it's something that you're concerned about. Because, yeah, I have pretty strong feelings about the use of this as a narrative device. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, it's kind of uncomfortable. And I think it works maybe a little better than it might simply because there's this look of pure malice. Well, on because Megan is evil right now. And also because it leads to Captain Britain being severely beaten by the elderly. Yeah. And as we've known in Excalibur for a long time, any Excalibur issue should have Captain Britain take as many embarrassing pratfalls as possible. And being beaten up by senior citizens with purses and canes is pretty great. Dude, they're kind of savage. They are. Well, I mean, you know, they're protective of this innocent woman who turns out is a vampire. Who turns into a green vampire bunny and hops off. Eventually, Captain Britain and Lockheed and Widget do catch up with her as she's about to, I don't know, eat a dog, it looks like. Yep. And there's a big fight, which just everything goes horribly wrong in. Lockheed almost sets everything on fire using his fire breath. Widget teleports them who knows where with its uncontrollable portals. And as they all stumble through, singed into this dimensional portal leading somewhere... There's Okay, so the dog reaction shot is like a cheap trope. It's as cheap as the record scratch in sitcoms or romantic comedies or whatever. But here, it's perfect. David Ross's dog reaction shot is wonderful. I think what it comes down to is that any dog reaction shot or any record scratch in a movie should always be accompanied by fire-breathing dragons and teleporting robot heads wearing party hats. Well, that's the thing. Excalibur is such a ridiculous comic that it is at its best and it's a fundamental conceit in it that there's always going to be someone standing by just looking baffled. And that's Excalibur. And sometimes that's Di Thomas. And sometimes it's an adorable scruffy dog who was almost eaten by Megan. Right. By Vampire Megan. Vampire Megan. Is this the second time she's been a vampire or the third? I mean, there was that one time during the meanwhile issue of the Crosstime Caper. Yes. Yes, there was. VampireMegan.tumblr.com could probably tell us if it existed. So they teleport to, actually, someplace that's pretty convenient, which is the basement of the lighthouse. It's a dimensional nexus, so maybe that's why Widget was drawn there. Who knows? But there's a giant scuffle, and the rest of Excalibur and Doctor Strange tromp down the stairs to find out what's up. Doctor Strange freezes Megan in place to try to figure out what the hell's going on. He's quickly able to determine that what is happening to her is a side effect of the Darkhold's Montessi formula released days ago. It has destroyed all of the vampires on Earth, but it has sent the residual vampire energy into Megan. That is the best superhero science I've heard in a long time. Residual vampire energy, y'all. Also, the Montessi formula and the Darkhold were a big deal in that uh, X-Men 92 series that just ended. They were, and they were delightfully used. The whole first arc was about that, and the second arc is about the ramifications of the no more vampires moment. I just really liked that the sort of incarnation of the Darkhold itself took the form of a little boy who was basically Clippy from Microsoft Office. Yes, yes, that was deeply delightful. X-Men 92 is so much fun. If you haven't read it, then you probably should. Is it all in trade now or just the Secret Wars series in the first arc of the ongoing? I'm not actually sure. If it's not all in trade now, it will be soon and there are two books out already. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. So Doctor Strange is eventually able to use the Eye of Agamotto to uh, gradually, painfully cure Megan of her vampire curse. And she's okay. And he heads off, Rintra in tow. First, though, he cautions Excalibur of some potential pitfalls. First of all, the curse may have to do with a foe of his in England. Kurt should take a vacation to heal from his injuries. And... Also, do yourselves a favor and do something about that dimensional nexus in the basement. 
They're always trouble. So you know what baffles me most about this issue? Uh, what's that? It's not the vampirism. Mm-hmm. It's not any of the large number of other things. It's the fact that there are no editorial footnotes. Oh, that is strange. Yeah, that's such an Excalibur thing. And this issue's got such bizarre stuff. You'd think they'd have some. Yeah, it alludes to so much other stuff, and especially so much stuff from Doctor Strange. Well, I mean, Doctor Strange also first met up with Kurt in X-Men Annual Number 4 when they went to Dante's Inferno, sort of. Yeah, you could footnote the hell out of this one, and they'd be useful footnotes to have. But no, we get no such luxuries. What we do get is a pretty great closing scene of the team fighting among themselves, because it really wouldn't be an Excalibur issue if you didn't have vampires, random chases, Captain Britain being beset by the elderly, and finally Excalibur having a petty argument. And Alison Stewart just grabs her coat and silently, bitterly walks out, not even noticed by the bickering team, and that's the end of our issue, and goddamn, this one's delightful. Right, so that brings us to Excalibur number 31. No man is an island, but no island is a man, so it works out. And this is the issue we mentioned earlier that's written by Scott Lobdell, who's later going to take over Excalibur in addition to doing a lot of X-Men work. It's drawn once again by David Ross, who I really enjoy on this book. I would describe this issue tonally as a romp or perhaps a lark. Yeah, it's got a very light tone and it feels kind of inconsequential, but it's just so fun that I feel fine about that. And if you're going to have a bunch of just fun issues in a row that don't tie into continuity or have any major character development, Excalibur's probably the book to do that in. Absolutely. We open with Kurt in the cockpit of a plane which is about to crash into the sea. How embarrassing. Every other ex-mutant gets to die in battle, saving the universe from one cosmic evil or another. Everyone except me, Kurt Wagner, the oft-amazing nightcrawler, dies on vacation. And the plane crashes into the sea and he teleports out at the last minute onto a nearby island, thwacking into a tree as he just rolls and rolls and rolls. Well, because he maintains velocity. Exactly. And right before losing consciousness, sees a giant Moai head of himself next to a bunch of Moai heads of a bunch of other X-Men the way they used to look back in, oh, I don't know, 1974. Kurt wakes up in a loincloth, which he is explained as having changed into an offhand bit of dialogue, I guess, in his sleep. I mean, I don't know. All I would say is, ladies and certain gentlemen, but also only certain ladies and non-binary people. But it's Kurt, so maybe everybody. That was very inclusive sleaziness. I'm very proud of you. I try to be inclusively sleazy. Anyway, Kurt wakes up in a cave, in a loincloth, wakes up in a loincloth in a cave. <laughs> the cave is not wearing a loincloth. You don't know that. That's true, we don't really if see If there it. were a cave likely to be wearing a loincloth, this is the island where it might be. But I digress slightly, and he sees a group of stereotypical, generic, made-up South Pacific Islanders, which... Yeah, there is some cultural iffiness in this issue, I gotta say. It's supposed to be, I think, a riff on cargo cults. I think so, yeah. But it's not terrifically well done, and it's sort of a silly story. And it's a type of silly story that works pretty well when you put it in space or in an alternate dimension. But when you set it in an actual place, you know, on Earth with an actual indigenous population who've been aggressively colonized, it's a little less cool to just sort of make stuff up. Yeah, that part is definitely unfortunate, it's true. Yeah. But they're carrying a screaming woman to the lip of a volcano, and Kurt follows them, and sure enough, they're about to throw her in as some kind of a sacrifice. Kurt teleports in to save her, and finds himself the object of the crowd's worship. Unfortunately, his teleport has taken the last of his energy, and he and the girl tip over and fall into the volcano. Thankfully, a big rock formation forms right under them and then carries them deep inside the volcano, where they see 
Well, a lot of stuff. First, some cave drawings that are very clearly reenacting the events from Giant Size X-Men number one. When Professor Xavier recruited a new team of X-Men to save the old team from Krakoa, the island that walks like a man. Meanwhile, the girl Kurt has apparently saved is really pissed off at him. It's unclear what's going on. He doesn't speak her language. We do not get convenient editorial translations of this one. In fact, there's an editor's note that says, sorry, I don't speak the language. Editor. And as we follow down, Kurt determines that, you know, maybe the natives here saw the fight on the other island. Maybe they worship the X-Men as gods now. But why the sacrifice, he wonders aloud. Maybe it is because they know that spores from the departing Krakoa fell back to Earth. Maybe because I need the occasional essence of a human soul to build my strength in order to avenge my sire. Maybe still, it is because they know that not even their pitiful ex-god can save them from the son of Krakoa. Those are all very good reasons. Do I have to choose from them or do I get to make up one of my own? Kurt is confronting, yeah, the son of Krakoa. It's a big, planty, monstery, islandy monster at the center of the volcano. With kind of a cute little turtle beak. He does have a cute little turtle beak, it's true. I like the son of Krakoa. He is a goofy one-off villain. He feels very, very early Bronze Age, which makes sense because he's, you know, a riff on the ultimate Bronze Age X-Men villain, the one that brought the new team together that would relaunch the X-Men and turn them from some black and yellow clad Silver Age heroes into the ones we know and love. The whole thing feels like kind of a love letter to Claremont and Cockrum's version and versions of Nightcrawler. Again, I think setting it as they did was a mistake, but it's it's pretty clear what they're riffing off of, and the Nightcrawler in this is very, very much the Cockrum Nightcrawler dialed up to 11. And we see that as Kurt is grabbed by the tendrils from Son of Krakoa, or Krakoa Jr., as I prefer to call him, and keeps on bantering, and Krakoa is intrigued, if not amused. That ever-present sense of humor, this is something I should develop before I bring about the genocide of the human race. I'm free on Tuesday if you'd like a lesson. Wow, I feel like I should be waggling my eyebrows and, like, chewing a cigar as I say this. Yeah, I gotta say, like, Cockrum Nightcrawler's got a little bit of the Marx Brothers to him. Well, Lobdell doing Cockrum's Nightcrawler. Yes, that too. And so, Son of Krakoa calls up a bunch of the old X-Men. Sort of. I mean, there's, like, an Ice Wolverine, a Lava Cyclops, a Stone Colossus. Apparently, the original Krakoa, back in Giant Size X-Men number one, recorded all of the X-Men's genetic material, which, I mean, okay, sure, why not? And so now the son of Krakoa can make his own iffy X-Men. Out of whatever natural resources are around. I love this trope. Like, it doesn't make any goddamn sense if you think about it for more than a second. Yeah, you wouldn't need the genetics to do this. It's just either. it's just awesome. But yes, he refers to them as his Vegemen. Which... I, I thought it was Vegamen. It's spelled V-E-G-A. But Vegemen would make more sense. I'm going to say... But they're not all plants. Only Angel and Nightcrawler are plants. But Vega's just a star. And also that guy with the claws in Street Fighter, but only in the American translation. Look, Miles, Krakoa is a sentient island. First of all, you don't know his language. Second of all, you don't know his priorities. Third of all, he probably doesn't have internet access. Maybe he just thought it sounded cool. I mean, that's valid. I'm going to go for Vegemen anyway, but I respect your opinion and your no prize. So it turns out that the woman that Nightcrawler saved from being sacrificed, now she's kind of in on it. She's seen that, you know, this ex-god, as the son of Krakoa called Kurt, is going against Krakoa Jr., and that's not cool. So she is now, in her language that is untranslated, commanding the son of Krakoa to kill, kill! And to kill the false god whom she has determined Nightcrawler to be. Nightcrawler escapes. He fights his way past a wooden angel and sort of a mud Nightcrawler, both of whom speak in Krakoa Jr.'s voice, because Krakoa Jr. is basically the island. And all that lives on it, not so much the people, 
And you see him sort of trying to replicate the X-Men's powers, specifically Nightcrawler's teleportation by sort of having the mud Nightcrawler dissolve and then slowly materialize somewhere else with sort of an awkward bump. I have never tried this before. How am I doing? Not so good, buddy. Not it's, so good. It's really great. I, I mean, the son of Krakoa, I mean, yes, he's super evil. Yes, he wants to destroy all of humanity, but he's just so lovable while he does it. And while Kurt is fleeing from the Vega men, Krakoa Jr. and um, the young woman who's supposed to be sacrificed to him have come to an understanding. They are now in love and they decide they're going to set off to conquer the world. Nightcrawler, however, apparently tries to flee. He's swimming away from the island and he stops to ask Krakoa Jr. if he's absolutely sure that there weren't any other Krakoa spores as Krakoa Jr. chases him into the ocean. No chance of that. When the X-Men reversed my father's magnetic polarity, I was the only spore to land on an island. All the rest fell into the sea. I lived while they... they... And Krakoa Jr. sinks, ranting until the end, and leaving a disappointed would-be sacrifice and or partner in world conquest behind. And the next thing we see is the rest of Excalibur, Captain Britain, Phoenix, and Megan... Finding Kurt, he is now on the island being waited on by some particularly attractive islanders and given a giant feast and fancy tropical drinks, and the villainous lady is hanging in a cage, which Kurt makes sure to point out that wasn't his idea, that was just their custom here when somebody messes with the gods. Still kind of gratuitous. And so they ask him what the hell's been going on? Like, how did he get in this situation? Maybe I should start at the beginning. I was flying here, and the plane Brian let me. That plane has been in my family for years. If anything happens to it... Maybe I should start in the middle. After I safely navigated the plane to the shore. And that's that. And that issue is just charming. I mean, a couple of iffy parts, but overall, it's just so much fun. So with that, you've got questions. GPAC3 asks on Tumblr, What happened to the Axis inversions? Sabretooth has stuck apparently, but did Havocs? It seemed like Tony Stark changed back at some point too, but when? How? If so, why weren't they all affected? Speaking of Havoc, why did Reed Richards fix Dr. Doom's face but not his at the end of Secret Wars? Okay, so Axis first, or as we like to call it, Sixus, because that's what its logo fucking says. For those of you unfamiliar, this was an event in which the um, moral alignment of a large number of Marvel characters was switched. So good guys became bad guys, bad guys became good guys. Most of them got switched back, a few didn't. As far as I can tell... Creative and editorial consensus since has been to never bring it up again and to pretend that it just didn't happen. But yeah, like GPAC 3 says, this has been a big deal for Sabretooth. That was huge in his characterization. Well, so what's happened is that the Axis changes have stuck where it was more useful to have that character and that alignment, and they've worn off where it wasn't. It has been entirely determined by plot mechanics and, again, hasn't been brought up. So yeah, there's a version of Sabretooth who's pretty much good now, kind of, but probably not best to look too deeply into that. As far as Havoc's face not getting fixed after Secret Wars, I sort of assume that Reed was specifically trying to throw Doom a bone considering that he had just knocked him down from God King status and also that having his face scarred was the basis of their entire, like, decades-long arch rivalry. Yeah, it's like Lex Luthor with not having any hair. And otherwise, he basically just tried to reset the universe as close to how it had been as possible. Um, I will say if he really wanted to do Alex a favor, he should have finished his dissertation. <laughs> right. That's how you just tweak reality a little bit. Right. Give those letters after his name. Ha. So an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I've been arguing with a friend and I need this settled. 
would Colossus support Russia in our current political landscape? So, man, I think what we have seen from Colossus is we've seen a character who has gone from very, very diehard Soviet partisanship to kind of a man without a country. At this point, I think Colossus's primary allegiance is to truth, justice, compassion, and sweet mustaches. He has a real sweet mustache and beard and mohawk these days. Hell yeah. And they're like metal. It's great. Uh, I mean, for me, in all seriousness, I, I kind of think he'd be conflicted. I mean, he's always been exceedingly loyal to Russia in the past, but like you said, Jay, that's drifted over time. He, he was the proletarian that one time, you remember? Yeah. That was great. I still want someone to cosplay that. <laughs> right? If I was beefy and tall and not mile-sized, I Dude, totally you could would. do it anyway. You could just be a small proletarian. You could be a scale model of the proletarian. <laughs> Perfect. Two-thirds scale. A slightly shrunk proletarian. But I would say that right now, based on what we learned of his attitude toward both Russia and the United States in the Colossus God's Country story that was in uh, Marvel Comics Presents, I think he'd be sad at the country's current kind of corruption and the problems that are happening in it, but also optimistic overall about the nation's virtue eventually triumphing. Yeah, Colossus's loyalty to Russia has, I think, very much always been to the ideal and to the people of Russia, not so much to the specific Russian government policies or the Russian government. I mean, kind of like Captain America done right with the United States in that regard. All right. We are an entirely listener-supported project, and some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional entities. I believe that today I am handing the mic to the late, great Krakoa Jr. Uh, So with apologies to Ed Wood, Bela Lugosi, and 1955's Bride of the Monster. Home? I have no home. Forgotten, feared, living like a sentient plant. This island is my home. But I will show the world that I can be its master. I will perfect my own race of people, starting with Corey McCreary and Dave Scheidecker. A race of Vega men which will conquer the world! Ha 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 ha! Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported, as Krakoa Jr. and Bella Lugosi just told you. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be sitting down with writer Cena Grace to talk about his work on the upcoming Iceman ongoing series. 